Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I realised I was actually and am proud of them because they did it. They loved, they were good, they were decent, they were kind. I am pleased to have honoured them in that way. If you were to tell the story of your family, how would it go? Whether enchanted by the stories of characters leading exciting lives on our screens or being made envious by the seemingly non-stop antics of adventurous social media influencers, these days we can all too easily be left feeling our lives and our families are rather mundane, ordinary even. But the reality is, no matter how much you believe that to be true, it isn't. You just need to reflect, take stock unpack the past, and you'll see what I mean. You see, though, Christina Patterson admits her family may not be conventionally successful. As you'll discover in this conversation, they are extraordinary. Christina is the author of Outside the Sky is Blue, a memoir about love and loss and so much more. And I am delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. How the Story Changed Outside the Sky is Blue explores what it's like to live with mental ill health, cancer and death. When Christina's brother Tom died very suddenly, she faced the harrowing task of cleaning out his house through box after box of letters, papers, photographs and belongings, Christina rediscovers her family story. The story of her young parents who decide to swap a glamorous diplomatic life in Rome for a housing estate in Surrey. The story of her sister, Caroline, whose schizophrenia increasingly disrupts their new suburban life. The story of Tom, who seeks solace in sport. And her own story, hoping to meet boys in a youth club, only to end up finding God. As the last one left alive, Christina's family story has been one of tragedy, and yet outside the sky is blue is also full of so much joy. I can think of a million reasons why you would not want to write this book. So what compelled Christina to confront and relive all of this heartache? Why did she put herself through this hell? The short answer, actually, Mark, is that it was the opposite of hell. It was heaven for me to write this book. It was absolute heaven. I have never enjoyed, seems a ridiculous word, but I have honestly never enjoyed a project so much, presumably because of that sense of compulsion. But also, I have wanted to tell a version of my family's story, I suppose, all my life. I mean, it's very hard to know when these thoughts actually crystallize. And also, when you allow yourself to think I might write you know I was a voracious reader from a very early age but was brought up as you know from reading the book with a kind of public service ethos background where the idea was that you 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 had to be useful to society and although my parents were big readers and my father would sort of weep over Anna Karenina and so on the sense was that that should be something kind of practical you know my mother was a teacher my father was a civil servant so I always grew up with a slight feeling that writing was a little bit on the self-indulgent side and so I don't know exactly when I thought I am going to write a book about my family but I do know that from childhood and from 
the time that I became aware that not all families were like ours, to slightly paraphrase Tolstoy, um, I did want to write about Caroline's illness, even before I knew it was an illness, because I knew there was something very sad and painful and difficult going on. And I was ashamed of it, actually. Um, I subsequently discovered that mental illness is something that causes shame to everyone, really. And then as I arguably, relatedly, got sucked into evangelical Christianity and had that whole story going on and the betrayal that I felt went with that, that was also a story I felt I needed to tell. So I had a very, very strong sense that there were things I needed to say, almost for my own sanity, actually. And then, of course, the story changed because first my sister died and then my father died and then my mother died and then my brother died four years ago, which was the worst thing that, to say it's the worst thing that ever happened to me is ridiculous because obviously it didn't happen to me, but it was utterly terrible. And of course, after that, the story changed. I never set out or wanted to write a story about my dead family. I thought it was going to be a story about my live family. But the urgency felt even more, well, amplified, really, after Tom's death, because I thought, actually, we're all going to be dead soon. And I just want somebody to know what happened in my family or my sense of what happened in my family. So I didn't. Of course, living through many of those things was extremely painful. And going through some of the papers that I quote in the book was painful. But this has been a long project. I think I say in the um, acknowledgements that I started a version of it many years ago. So I was familiar with quite a lot of these papers. And one of the biggest shocks was a page of my sister's diary, which I talk about in the book, which I won't necessarily say what was in that now that was a terrible terrible shock that was I had cancer the second time that was deeply 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 shocking but most of it I sort of knew and although it was painful to read about some of it and to discover some of it there is I really believe very strongly something truly cathartic about truth and if I have a mantra in life, it's probably from Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And as far as I'm concerned, if you have truth and beauty, you're kind of fine. So for me, this was telling the truth and trying to do it with as much beauty as I could muster. And that was incredibly cathartic. The extract that you talk about from your sister's diary for people reading this who haven't read the book, when you get to page 311, I guarantee you that it will stop you cold. And that's just reading it. So I can't imagine what it was like for you living it. But I have this image of you in one of Tom's spare rooms going through box after box and folder after folder and essentially seeing or holding in your hands a documentary record of mm. the Patterson family and for mm. a family history that is littered with tragedy you are unashamedly in love with life and you believe passionately that life is absolutely for living and you could be completely forgiven to not have that approach and to believe that this is some kind of curse 
on you and your family, but you don't. And I was astonished by how much joy there is in your life and in your family history and now in your present and what will hopefully be a long and happy future. But the juxtaposition between tragedy and this desire that seems to be within you to not condemn yourself to a fate that you think has already been prescribed, but to actually grab life by the throat and live it. It comes screaming through this book. And I really, after the first few pages, thought, I, I'm not sure how you're doing this, because this is quite incredible, because it is obviously a family memoir. And you set up quite early on the notion that there has been sadness and tragedy in your life. But then there is sadness and tragedy in everyone's life. And I wanted to share one thing. It made me, and I wasn't expecting this, it made me so unbelievably grateful for how blessed with a very small amount of tragedy I have experienced in my life. And that made me reflect a lot about my own family and my own upbringing. And again, why do we celebrate these things when there is so much badness that goes on in the world. But I just want to pause there because I'm not putting words into your mouth, but you'd strike me as someone that is in love with life. Well, you can see me crying now. But I'm going to, any minute, I'm going to start holding. <laughs> um, I'm deeply, deeply honoured and, yeah, honoured and awed by your response, actually. That's one of the most beautiful things anyone has said about the book and um i am deeply in love with life i am deeply in love with life i think i think i would have to say looking back i wasn't always and i think there was a lot of sadness for quite a long time and it's very hard to say what the process is that of that kind of alchemy that moves you from sadness to joy. I have always had enormous joie de vivre along with the sadness. I'm, And I don't claim any credit for that. It's just my personality mix. And my mother, as is clear from the book, had a huge gift for daily joy, her coffee and cake. And I, I'm totally hooked on all the things she was hooked on. <laughs> I'm meant to be doing the Zoe app at the moment, but I'm failing at it massively because I, I've got such a psychological pull to, you know, wine and crisps and coffee and cake. So I definitely, and my father had that gift as well. So I definitely was brought up by people who, in the midst of sadness, had a huge natural gift for joy. I think my mother more than anyone. And so maybe I do have something of a natural gift for, for joy as well. But also, obviously, if you've lost every member of your family and if you've survived cancer twice, you can't not be aware that life is incredibly precious. And it absolutely is. And... It is so full of beauty. And yeah, so I'm thrilled beyond measure and articulation that my book gave you that sense. And it's not particularly something I set out to communicate. It's just, I suppose, what comes across because that is how I feel about life. Chapter two, you can't pour from an empty cup. What becomes clear to me throughout this book is that we as humans find it difficult to help others unless we're fully fixed ourselves. 
At moments in the book, I felt a great deal of sadness being in the hands of someone who hasn't yet fully accepted themselves. But the culmination of Christina's journey, everything from the physical pain she's felt throughout her life to the emotional turmoil she's been through, all brings her to a moment of realisation, of understanding the importance of loving yourself and of accepting your shortcomings. I asked Christina if this discovery surprised her during the writing process or if it's been decades in the making? I think it's a lifelong discovery, really. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's not possible to help anyone at all when you are, I mean, nobody adores themselves, or if they do, they are called Boris Johnson and have unfortunately managed to mess up the entire country. So we're all a mix, aren't we? And I would hope that, you know, along the way, even in my self-flagellating mode, I've always had lots of friends and I hope I've been able to sort of help support people along the way. But you are absolutely right that this kind of almost cliche, almost that thing that people keep saying, particularly, I, I imagine, sort of Instagram gurus about, you know, well, you can't help anyone else until you put your oxygen mask on, you know, and everyone uses that thing all the time, don't they? Right. And I do think there's an element of truth in that. I, I And I think possibly one of the key reasons for that is that when you do have a lot of largely unconscious for most of us negative feelings about yourself anger shame self-pity whatever it might be I think the key problem with that is it just eats up a lot of energy and I think that when you are more relaxed in your own skin and not worrying about what people think of you and not whipping yourself all the time for not being good enough at this or not achieving that or not working hard enough or not finding a boyfriend or not having a family or not being half a stone thinner or whatever else it might be, then you haven't got the energy to give to people or simply to stop and look up and think, oh my God, that rose is beautiful. You're just too caught up in this kind of whirling, negative whirling dervish in your head. And I think who knows the kind of various ingredients that go into yanking us from immaturity really to something more like maturity but certainly for me one of the key factors was this therapist I saw when I was 46 who was recommended to me who was quite headmasterish. Um, he'd been a psychiatrist in the NHS he wore a suit and a tie I was terrified of him and kind of mortified at having to tell him I was about to have a mastectomy all of that and that was embarrassing enough without going into you know all the other horrors of my life my love life my family etc but I saw him for three years and lying on a couch in the you know traditional analytic way and something about that changed me absolutely profoundly and I think probably if I hadn't had that therapy I wouldn't be in a relationship now I think it's no great surprise that love can also have a fairly transformative effect on someone. And this is absolutely not to say, oh, you're better off being in a couple than being single. There was masses I loved about being single. And there's a lot I look back on, all the adventures I used to have and the freedom I had and the things I had. And I think, wow, that was absolutely amazing. Why didn't I enjoy, in, enjoy it more? But of course, loving and being loved is a tr transformative experience for many of us and I think a mix of therapy friendship finding love and all kinds of other things that we stumble across in a life helped to turn me from someone who had a propensity to self-attack 
at every level, both psychological and physical. I mean, I didn't, you know, cut myself or anything, but I had a lot of physical pain in my body, which I now think was my way of carrying my distress. And to someone who is, you know, relatively relaxed about life, don't really care that much what people think of me. I mean, I was on, I did Sky on Saturday night. I do it every, I do it twice a month. And um, I kept, I kept mis- mispronouncing Prigozhin. <laughs> I'd been sort of practicing the name and then I kept getting a block about it. And um, and the poor producer was kind of saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, you were fine. And I thought, look, honestly, don't sit here thinking I'm, I'm flagellating myself because I mispronounced the name of, you know, a Russian warlord. It really doesn't matter very much. Nobody is watching and thinking, oh, my God, Christina Patton's a complete disaster because she can't pronounce Prigozhin properly. But, you know, there are other circumstances in which any of us in that situation might think, oh, no, I really fucked up on live TV. And it just doesn't matter very much. So there is who knows? I mean, I think I think probably all the happiness charts say that people get happier as they get over. So probably there is a degree to which this is true for all of us that we get more comfortable in our own skin or at least most of us but uh, of course it depends where you start off and I think I was very very fierce to myself for a long time. Chapter three rediscovering the past. References to the weather appear like a metronome throughout this book. The story of Christina's life is essentially punctuated by the weather and what it's going to be like the next day. But also the weather is incredibly important to her father, who was obsessed with the forecast. The title of this book, Outside the Sky is Blue, is so beautiful and important enough to Christina that she even thanks the individual who came up with it in the acknowledgements. So what was the genesis of the title? Was it inspired by this link to the weather? I was absolutely delighted with that title because I had various titles that I wasn't happy with. And uh, I won't say what, I can't even, not sure I can even remember now, but I wasn't happy with them. And when this uh, book went to out to publishers I was lucky enough that there was a a little auction and the publisher who eventually published it sent me a pitch with a sample cover a mock-up cover with some text and the text just happened to include it was a very well chosen paragraph and it was about when my brother and sister and I were on the Festiniog railway on one of our trips to Wales as children and I'm describing I think it must have been cine film, one of my parents' old cine films of us in on this train. And and I just say outside the sky is blue. And that paragraph was on this mock jacket. And I can't remember why I sent it to um, one of my best friends, Maura Dooley, the poet. Her husband, David Hunter, was a is also a fantastically literary person and was a radio producer at the BBC for many, many years. And um she just t- sent me a WhatsApp message saying, David says, how about outside the sky is blue? And I thought, oh, that's it. That's it. And it says kind of everything I wanted to say in that there's a sense of kind of outside the sky is blue. Therefore, what is happening inside? So so it's not a kind of, you know, the sun is shining or whatever. It's got a bit more nuance than that. And you're absolutely right about the weather being an important theme. And I love the idea of it being like a metronome, a kind of rhythm throughout the book and I suppose that came unconsciously from my father's obsession with the weather. I've rarely seen beautifully haunting prose quite so often in a story and there were times when I just had to stop and just reflect on how beautiful particular 
lines were. But then at the same time, the juxtaposition with the sheer joy you find in Carver and Kettle Chips, which was just, just a wonderful throwaway line. You talk with great fondness about your time at the Poetry Society, but this writing on the front cover of my book, it says Patterson is a passionate, funny woman who refuses simply to struggle on. She believes in living. I mean, it, it could have said many, many things. One of the things I think it just uh, it, it should say, and, and we should really reflect on this, because it is rare that we get a writer like you to talk to on this particular show. The literary heights of, of this, and I said this to you in my notes, and this is not an exaggeration, do put me in mind of James Salter. And I know you will be far too polite to accept that. But I have read a lot of James Salter and there are shades of him throughout your writing with particular reference to tense. And you struggle throughout the book to remember, if you like, consciously that your siblings and that your parents are no longer with us. And so you're using the wrong tense when you're talking about them. But... It's not just tense, Christina. It is throughout it. I know what impact Salter has on me when I read him. And your book had the exact same impact on me in that the heights of this book are so astonishingly high. They really are. That I would just like you to know that it had that impact on me. And you will be far too polite and we'll move on to a different question, but I've at least done my bit now by telling you, you can write every bit as good as James Salter can. Well, I'm going to start sort of giggling wildly like a nervous schoolgirl at this point, because of course the instant thing I want to say is obviously I don't. So I, but I won't say that because I just told you that I'm not the kind of, you know, ludicrously self-hating creature that I was for so many years. So I will simply say that that is probably the nicest thing anyone has ever said about any of my work. Right. And, I'll stop embarrassing and, you. Yeah, we'll, we'll stop move, it there. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. How much did you learn during the rereading or the reading and the discovery of all the stuff in Tom's house of, you know, your mother's mm. diaries? Your mother essentially was a documentary maker without even yeah. knowing it, right? But how yeah. much did you learn about your life by immersing yourself in this mm. material? Well, I had come across a lot of it before but I did learn details that that surprised me and for example things like some of my father's diary writings was his he was very laconic mum was much more sort of effusive and his diary entries mostly were he would have like have sort of a three-line diary entry for most days but he, he would do that every day and but some of them were just so poetic actually and after he was diagnosed with cancer he there was one when he talked about I can't remember the flower now but um he, he just commented on the flowers he'd seen in a garden and wonderful you know, he knew he was dying basically and he just said oh we saw these wonderful flowers at this national trust garden or whatever put much more you know beautifully than that and there were moments when sorry when their grace their grace really hit me and surprised me and I think in a way that was the thing I wanted to communicate. Oh, I can't pick out one thing, but the message in in as far as it was a family memoir, I wanted to commemorate and celebrate these profoundly decent people because I was brought up by people who I think were very good. They were very good people. Goodness was 
probably the most important thing in my childhood. And, and it's why I'm still almost naively shocked when people behave badly, which of course they do. And so I didn't, I didn't discover any actual, at that particular point when I was going through Tom's house, I didn't discover any significant new facts. Although the whole thing, I was in a state of trauma when I went through his house. And in fact, I'm in the process of moving now and I will have to throw out a lot of stuff. And a lot of it, I will just think, look, I'm not going to look at that again. I've been, I've written the memoir now. All those papers are going out now. And I know that will also be difficult, but I don't, I haven't got anywhere to store boxes of papers. I'm probably not going to look at again. So I wouldn't say it significantly changed the story, but I think structure for me is the most difficult thing about writing a book. It was the most difficult thing in my last book and it was the most difficult thing in this book. And in a way, the structure, the process of piecing it together and weaving it together in a way brings a kind of fresh perspective to it. And I don't think I can articulate exactly what that perspective is, but it's something to do with the alchemy of transforming life into as new as you can get to art. I would like to offer you something um, as a reflection that I I don't... don't feel you need to respond to it because this may be difficult, but I think that had, pick anyone, Tom, for example, had the opportunity to read this book, I think the Pattersons should be extremely proud of themselves as a family and a family unit. You do get, particularly with Tom being this gentle giant of a man that small children would look up to in you know, in wonder, the kindness does come screaming through parents trying to do the right thing without necessarily knowing what that what the right thing is, because we're all making this up as we go along. Right. There isn't a manual that describes how to do it. Mm -hmm. But I also think that you yourself should take great pride in being part of this family and then in a way honoring them by writing this memoir. And, And that, I think, is the reflection that I take away from this. And I've said this on this show many times, I try and it's often very difficult to separate the reader from the writer when I'm reading, because as a reader, I'm, I'm loving this as a writer. I'm, I'm thinking that that's how have you written something that literary in this, in this moment, it's extraordinary. But I, when I finished it, and I remember I was, I read it, I read it twice. And the the first time I read it, my wife said, is it good? I said, it's astonishing. And she said, oh, she read the back and she goes, oh, it seems, it seems sad. I said, it is. There's a huge amount of sadness in it, but there's also a huge, an astonishing amount of joy. And when I got to the end, and again, for the second time, when I got to the end, I simply reflected and I, I wrote in my notes, I didn't send these notes to you, but I just said, Christina should be very proud of herself because what she has done is honored her family through the most incredible form of literary memoir that I have read in a very, very long time. When you think about this book and you may have moved on to other things now, but have you allowed yourself a moment of pride and reflection about what you have created? Gosh, well, again, thank you, Mark. Um, I almost don't know what to say to that. In terms of the, I mean, the short answer is yes, actually, because mum used to hate those round robin 
letters that people would send at Christmas, you know, so-and-so's just got their first from Cambridge and so-and-so's now becoming a PWC and, you know, whatever. And mum would be like, yeah, well, you know, Caroline's just had another breakdown. Tom's now been signed off work with depression. Christina's got lupus, you know, she'd be far too polite to use the language I would use in those circumstances, but she wasn't happy, let's put it that way. So, and of course, of course, you know, she didn't, wasn't thrilled that Tom ended up as a jobbing gardener for her friends. And she wasn't thrilled that her daughter, you know, her eldest daughter never managed to hold down a job for, well, she, apart from her first job for a, a, three years and after that, nothing really. And she wasn't thrilled that I didn't manage to marry and have children. And, you know, I'd heard her say several times, you know, the tragedy of my life as I ha haven't got any grandchildren. And I thought, I thought, gosh, mum, of all the tragedies you've been through in your life, I'm not sure that's the one I would pick. But anyway, um, so yeah, I don't think anyone could have looked at the Patterson family and said, oh, what a conventionally successful party. You know, clearly not. But but it, I did want to honour them because I did and do think, and this was partly a kind of conclusion I reached because I didn't know how I was going to end the book, really. And I ended it, yeah, by talking about my family in those terms. And I realised I was actually and am proud of them because in terms of the most important stuff, they did it. They they loved, they were good, they were decent, they were kind, they were courageous, they responded to life's challenges in all kinds of ways. So I am pleased to have honoured them in that way. And yes, I am quite proud of this book, actually. You know, I'm um, I'm a critic as well as I've been a critic for more than 30 years. And um, I think it's not a bad book. So, <laughs> so yes, I, I will allow myself to say that. I think we can go one step further than that. Outside the Sky is Blue is a phenomenal family memoir. Christina Patterson, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, it's been an absolute joy and the most flattering experience of my life to talk to you today, Mark. So thank you very, very, very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Conclusion, a massive thank you to Christina Patterson for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? Often it's not until we reflect on our lives that we can truly appreciate just how far from ordinary they have been. Everyone has a memoir in them. All stories are worth telling. As writers, we are incredibly vulnerable to pouring from empty cups and of letting negative feelings about ourselves eat up our energy. If that's you, whether it's through therapy or some other means, find a way to escape it so you can better spend your energy on the things you love. And finally, try keeping a diary. You never know how valuable it might be to someone someday, how it could change somebody's life. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast to check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.